Welcome back to the Confluence Podcast. I'm Evan Troxell. And I'm Randall Stevens. On today's episode, uh, we're happy to bring Dave Peterson and Sarah Causey from Flad Architects. Uh, Dave was one of our presenters at this past, at the 2023 Confluence event uh, this past fall. And uh, both Dave and Sarah are part of a, of a you know, technology leadership team at FLAD, and they've been tackling, you know, um, appropriately, as you'll hear in the, um, in the podcast, as far as the timing and, and why they kind of got drug into uh, tackling this early there is, is really the, around AI from a legal, ethical, you know, the ethics involved, the legal side of it. And, um, you know, it's, I think, testament to uh, that, that FLAD and the team there as a whole has been really investigating and pushing on this, which has led the team to have to, you know, think some of these things through. And uh, thanks to Dave for coming and presenting and kind of leading, helping to lead some of that conversation and ultimately for, for he and Sarah today on today's podcast uh, to kind of bring this, their, their thoughts around this to everyone. I appreciate the presentation at Confluence because, uh, like I say in our full conversation, everybody's experiencing very similar things. Thanks to Flad for talking about it out loud. And that's why I'm excited about this podcast getting out to an even larger audience because everybody's navigating this on some level. And Flad is proactively engaging with it, not just standing on the sidelines watching it happen. I think we've all experienced what they've experienced when these tools started hitting the mainstream, which was excitement, uh, fear, all of the things. And, and But at the same time, like everybody wants to play with it and try it out. And, and they're actually thinking more out into the future and saying, what are the actual implications? What are the legal implications? What are the risk implications? What are the uh, creative implications? And thinking about it from various aspects of how that all fits into practice. And so uh, this is a fantastic conversation because it really, it, it, it is proactive and about having the conversation that everybody should be having out loud, us as an industry, the AEC industry. And everybody's tackling this in, in some way, right, in some form or another, and, and often in a very private manner. So I really am happy to bring this conversation out to more people. And just here's the current thinking. It'll likely change, you know, in, within the next year. But at the same time, uh, trying to get out ahead of it is really proactive. And I'm appreciative to Dave and Sarah for bringing this. So I'm excited to get into this conversation today. Anytime something new like this that is is impactful as it is part of the challenge is to is to get the language that we how we talk about it the framework to talk about it and i think that's mm -hmm. one of the uh, things that i think you'll see in here in this podcast that they've really taken what we understand about it today and trying to put a framework so that we can logically kind of work our way through what yeah. are new issues that have to be thought about. so we'll start in let's do it Thanks, everybody, for joining the podcast today. We have as guests Dave Peterson and Sarah Causey from FLAD. And uh, really happy to have you guys on. Dave uh, was actually attended this past fall's Confluence event that we had here in Lexington. And uh, Evan was in attendance as well, but did a great presentation on how FLAD is thinking about and approaching legal and ethical sides of, of AI and what the firm is early in the in these early stages doing um, 
to kind of think about that. So first of all, thanks, Dave and Sarah. And I know there's other parts of your team that are also working on this, but I appreciate you all coming on to the podcast. Dave, maybe you can just kind of give the, the thumbnail sketch of what you talked about when you were here in Lexington, and then we can kind of pick up and dive in. We started looking at some AI tools with inside of our, our FX group, which is kind of our, our computational design group at FLAT. And we had a number of questions about, you know, what is out there, what tools are there, what things are available. And, and so we did a presentation and said, hey, here's all the really great AI stuff that's out there and available. And then we talked to him about a month and a half later and realized that they're all using it. We're like, whoa, hold on a second. We, we really need to evaluate what, um, what it is that we should be using, how we should be using it, and, and what that really means to be using something that may or may not have been generated 100% in-house. Like, do we need to give credit to somebody else? Do we need to give credit to the software? Do we, do we not need to, you know, should we not be entering any information into these things? Um, and those kind of thoughts. So we kind of got together along with our legal team and looked at how things kind of sit around the marketplace uh, and, and kind of tried to put things into four different buckets of uh, where we thought these type of ideas and thoughts kind of go. Um, you know, confidentiality is one of them. We, we have a lot of confidential clients, so we don't want to be entering any information into a database that's going to get used somewhere else. There's you know, the privacy side of it to make sure that any of our stuff stays again in-house. And then, you know, who owns it? The discrimination that can kind of happen inherently inside of AI because it doesn't know what it doesn't know. And then the validity is the output that we're getting from the tool. Uh, is it correct? Is it valuable? Is it right? You know, and again, is there bias? And, you know, I think some of those answers are, you know, there is kind of bias. So that was, that was kind of the, the gist of the talk that I, that I gave. It's a great framework, right? To have this conversation. I'm sure it took you all, I'm sure several conversations internally to kind of boil it down into, uh, into this. Sarah, maybe, you know, uh, they've said you all, part of this is the legal aspects of it. Uh, so how did you all, what did that, how did that conversation start? You know, I've, I've worked with plenty of attorneys over the years there. They always like to say no. Right. So where's that healthy, <laughs> is there a healthy tension, right. On that side of it that you all, how did you all think about that and approach it? I think we have sort of a blessing in disguise, depending on how you look at it at FLAD, because FLAD is organized. Uh, it's a 95 year old company. We're not new. There's a lot of structure and, and historic success in that. And, uh, Flat is owned, I guess, Dave, correct me if I'm wrong, if I'm using the wrong words, by a parent company called FAC, F-A-C. And FAC has aspects that serve ourselves and other sister companies in different ways, including um, expense reporting, travel booking, and one of those is legal. So what's great about working with that oversight team is that they're not in our day-to-day -day business, which means we had to sort of really dive into what are we talking about? How are we using it? Because they needed to first understand what was going on before they gave advice. And I think that really worked out well because there were no preconceived notions about what's good, what's bad for AEC. Um, it was it was very, let's explore, let's be curious. And so I think that served us well in coming to some sort of a conclusion that maybe not only serves FLAD, but also any of the sister companies inside um, in different ways. So it's a little maybe high level, 
Uh, but I think that gives us some room to to explore and drill out or drill in, depending on what tool we're looking at. Are the are the sister companies in related spaces or outside of? One is AEI, the engineering firm, and so there's a direct way that they can use that information. Um, Dave, do you have any? Yeah. So our 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 company again, 95 years ago when it started, we we had structural in-house we had mep in-house um we we had management all in-house uh and we got to a size where we realized that you know maybe we should look at trying to do this as an umbrella company right um and a number of the 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 top execs at that point kind of all became shareholders and split off and so we have our mep group that was in-house formed to generate affiliated engineering inc um the there's the again the flat affiliated corporation is the overall Arching company that that owns essentially, depending again on how you look, <laughs> owns is a is a is a strong word there. Um, the rest of them, then we have a development company called Plaid Development, um, and uh, affiliated construction services uh, was also underneath their. I think they're still underneath our umbrella as well. Um, and so there's a, a CM side, there's a, an MEP side, and there's an architectural structural side. So we have structural still in house with our with the flat architects group. Um, and then, so we kind of split into four companies, but we've got one parent that kind of oversees, you know, and, and does a lot of your accounting work and some of the other, you know, billing and hourly and, you know, timesheets and that kind of stuff. Uh, and part of that again, is that, that legal side. So in working with them on a legal side, it's, I've always really enjoyed it because anytime I have a question that I, I get to ask a lawyer, right. not get a bill for it. Um, <laughs> great. So it's, you know, it's, it's it's great, and uh, they like to work with us because they they get kind of excited about what they don't right. know as well. Right. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so we propose a topic to them, such as, "Hey, what should we do with this? We've got this new thing. How do we want to use this?" And they kind of look at it and go, "All right, we're going to separate the business, you know, from from the uh, the growth and look at it and go, what can we do here uh, to make sure that we limit ourselves in any exposure uh, to litigation that we're going to have?" Did they? Um, so that's, that's really where they come at it from and, and they're great to talk with and they, they bring up some really good points a lot of times of things we didn't even think about. That's right. Did they help to kind of break this into these kind of logical groupings of how to think about it? Was that, was that from a legal framework or a combination of both sides kind of thinking throughout how to split this up? It's, there's obviously many tentacles um, to what we're talking about here. Uh, sir, I think you you were a little more involved at the beginning of that stage. It's so kind of a I, both answer. Um, when Dave mentioned that what spawned the entire discussion was, oh, no, our users really got excited and are using all of problem. these tools, which is it's such a good thing. And we never want to squash that. But, um, you know, we have a lot of uh forum types of discussions across the firm we're 10 different offices we try to get people together cross office for discussions which is what everybody's doing right especially post pandemic we have all these capabilities and uh one specific group is called the design forum and it's it's design oriented maybe not so technically oriented discussions and i'll give an example of one tool that came up was veris which is a wonderful tool that produces uh, image generation renderings based on text prompts, which is fabulous. Um, but we had found out that some images that were generated had already, in testing, had already been presented in different forms. So it was sort of 
uh, oh no, what have what have we done? And in exploring, um, okay, so like Dave mentioned, with confidential clients, we work with the national laboratories, we work with pharmaceutical companies, you know, people who do not want their information out there. Okay, we're working with this third-party add-in that has access to the model. So the plans, the equipment, metadata, where does it go? Who, you know, what, what level of uh, access do they have to our information? And in just being curious, we, you know, you pull up documentation, terms and conditions that everyone just checks the box and immediately became aware that this was a discussion our team couldn't handle and somebody else needed to help. Um, we've been very clear also with our president, our, our new female president inside the firm, Laura, that uh, our team, the computational design team Dave mentioned, FlatFX, is in an advisory position. We will collect information. We will make recommendations. We will advise. But that decision has got to be coming from someone who has control of the firm, especially as a large firm, an AIA large firm. Um, there's so much decision-making that has impacts on the whole industry. So Dave and I were sort of red flags. <laughs> Let's ask someone else. <laughs> Makes sense. I'm just wondering from, from both of your standpoints, uh, maybe you could set uh, context around the size of your firm because sure. what's interesting about this conversation is this applies to all scales of firms. Sure. It could be a sole practitioner all the way up to the very largest of firms. And and then you also have the added complexity of all these different groups. And I'm sure AI wasn't only happening on the architecture, on the FLAD side. It was probably happening or being, you know, experimented with in all these different places. And and so I'm just kind of wondering from if you can set the context there and then talk about some of the initial spark that you were seeing um, with, you mentioned Veris. I'm sure there were other ones though too, like text base and things like that. And and again, it's not just one silo within the firm. Silo is probably a bad word to use, right? But it's not just happening on the design side. It's happening on the executive side as well, right? With, with responding to email, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> so, so maybe you could just kind of go through that because um, I think what we're seeing is we're seeing AI turn into a utility, right? It's not simply um, just for these 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 really amazing images, right? But it's like people are actually using it for all kinds of things. And risk management is a huge piece of every single firm out there. Again, big or small, some people don't think about it as much as others, right? And so I'm sure I just stirred up a bunch of, of things. So I, I would love for you guys to jump into that and let's see where this goes. Dave, you want to sure. start? Sure. So um, the Flat Architects itself, we we have about 400, 415 staff, something like that across 10 offices throughout the United States. Uh, we've got offices on the East Coast, West Coast, and then kind of Madison is our, our main hub. Um, uh, our affiliate company, AI, that we mentioned, I, I want to say they're close to a thousand staff. That, that might be that might be high. They're somewhere between 800 and 1,000, I think. They they have a number of different offices. I don't have a count on it. Uh, mm -hmm. They're they're large, um, you know. And and then our our other two are very they're relatively small. There's not a whole lot of not a lot of staff there. Um, you know, on on Flad side, on the the architectural side of it, um, again with their 400 staff and 10 offices, it's we're not big, but we're not small. 
like every time you go fill out one of those Autodesk things where it says, hey, are you a large firm? And it's like you're 100 to 500. Big so range. we're in that, you know, we're right. It's a big range. And, you know, we have felt our, our growth. Yes. Yeah, so when I started in 2002, um, I think we, we were closer to the 300 mark. So in the last 20 years, we've really only added 100 staff. Um, but we've added a number of offices and through the ebbs and flows, things have changed. Um, you know, which is always what we've done, but we, flat has always tried to take a growth aspect of, we don't really want to, you know, we don't want to let people go. We, we don't want to outgrow and outpace what we might be able to do next year. We, we'd rather be, we'd rather be pushing everybody a little bit more, I think, to, to get work done than have to go, look, we just hired 20 people. Now the project's done and now they're gone. Um, Mm. you know, that's not, we are still very much, um, at least internally in, in our, environment kind of considered more of a family-owned company there's there's i think eight shareholders we're we're at uh that actually own theory of the company um i could be wrong on that uh but you know so we're we're not large by any means um you know we're 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 400 staff Mm -hmm. Um, and as far as like the kinds of tools that you were seeing that initial spark with that that people really took off with Give an idea of that because, again, I, I know that there's a bunch of usual suspects in this and, and we're going back a little bit in time, but it did kind of capture people's interest and attention pretty right. fast. Right. So, you know, ChatGPT obviously was a was a big thing. Um, we first found out about somebody that used it to uh, to to do a kind of a boilerplate uh, RFP. Um, mm-hmm. Of course, they revised it afterwards, but, um, you know, it's one of those, oh, are we, are we sure about that? Did you really read through everything that was there? Because, um, you know, that, that can get you into trouble. Uh, just, again, due to that inherent bias that's in it. Um, MidJourney was another one that, that people were playing around with. Um, and Sarah, correct, but there's got to be some other ones I know that. that yeah. I mean, those, well, those when the... we did presentations on Pix to Sequence and Dali and, you know, as the computation team, we're doing quite a lot with generative design. So what's that bridge or crossover between what we're already doing and what the future holds? We also should mention we have a, a whole role, machine learning specialist, a gal who's fabulous in San Francisco, who um, her whole role is to educate us, keep up with it, integrate it into into our data and analytics team. So luckily, we have someone who can carry the torch or the conversation and the research, which is nice. Um, but I think the fascinating thing that we realized when we got together at the end of the year to do our sort of annual summit, reflect on the year and plan for next year. Um, There was a wonderful conversation. The former CEO was prompting us, hey, you know, we spend a lot of money in the construction documents phase documenting. Can we target the power of AI for that? And what we realized in answering that question and thinking about it is, uh, What's so fascinating in our industry so far is you'd think that that's where it would go, that you'd think that most of the tools would be harnessing, you know, automation and and population of data or or documents, menial tasks, speeding them up. Uh, But what we have seen, and y'all correct me if we're out of the the loop or something, is there's so much uh, developing on the design side, which is not what you would have maybe predicted 10 years ago that AI right. would do. Absolutely. And that's mm-hmm. our fun place. That's our creativity. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, how do we how do we consume that and be okay with that when really the, the ROI value is, is more on the CD phase side? 
Right. I, it's and funny I think that you bring that up because automation, it to me now seems like the past. Like auto, and and now all these words that I'm about to mention are AI nowadays, right? So we had automation, which is now AI, uh, and then and then there's machine learning, which obviously is a subset of AI. But that was where we were spending a lot of time. And then there's AI, which is like the future, right? And and it was always viewed as the future that was never really here. Now it's here. Now it's subsumed all those terms and everything and anything is AI. And it's interesting to me to kind of watch that progression. And I'm sure when you guys started, right, you're using outside services to generate things that we didn't use our own data to train it. And now there's this very real ability to take our data and use it for training. And you can make the flat version right. of a lot of these things, right? Um, is that kind of where this has gone? Maybe in this term of this period of time that we're talking about, are you now working on creating, because then you, you seem to have more, I, I would assume more trust in that output because it's based on decisions that have been made by your company, you know, over years or decades, you know, you said you've been around for 95 years, maybe you haven't gone back that far, but there's definitely a lot of data that gets generated in these firms on a day-to-day -day basis that can be used if, if maybe structured properly. And that's a, maybe another conversation that would take forever to, to get through, right? Because structured data is difficult in AEC. Yeah. But maybe you can talk through kind of the, the journey that you've even seen since you started having these discussions with the lawyers about, about this kind of stuff. Yeah, I don't know, Dave, if you want to go, if you want me to go. My brain go right went like ahead. all over the <laughs> place while you were talking. Yeah. A bunch of questions. Scary. Go for it, Sarah. Um, Okay. Um, well, uh, a couple different things. We are in a fortunate position, unfortunate and fortunate at FLAD, and I'm going to explain why. So when a lot of the Viz-based tools came out, you would see um, Zaha Hadid, newly generated building. We're not going to be able to ever produce that at FLAD because every single one of our projects is bespoke. They do not look the same. There is no kit of mm. parts because our clients are looking for different things. However, on the data side, we're very fortunate that Flat historically, now you're right, I'll let Dave go on a tangent about BIM and, and data format because he will get him, he won't stop talking about it. But um, like the projects, they're all different. That's right. right? But in our favor <laughs> is that we are very specialized in a couple market sectors. I mean, we are consistently ranked one or two, at least in the top ten, uh, five of laboratory in S&T by the mm. BD plus C rankings. So we are lab planners. We build labs for pharmaceuticals, for you know higher ed, different different laboratories, and they don't get that different from each other. So there's where our power is: is in the more technical planning side of things. Maybe not in a style, a stylistically, you know, sort of look and feel. Right. You know, we I, I've worked at Flat now for almost 22 years, going on 23, I think. Uh, That's like a right. whole adult, Dave. It's there like a whole adult, exactly. Um, and I can tell you, I've, I've never done two buildings that are the same, ever. Uh, and, yeah. and some of those were healthcare projects. And even those, like we, we've taken what we've kind of learned from what we do with our S&T process and applied some of that to what we kind of do with the healthcare process as well. So we, we learn what that process is. Um, you know, so historically, one thing that, that Vlad has been collecting data on for a long time um, has been square footages of space and how those relate to other things. So we are, are benchmarking as we have it. Uh, and so we, we 
developed a process over the last four or five years that has kind of gone through. And when project gets done, we catalog it and catalog all the areas that are in it and associate a cost with it and, and do all these things. So when somebody comes back and says, well, what, you know, how big of a building do I need? Well, what do you have? Let's check the boxes. Kind of what are we doing? Mm -hmm. Check the boxes. Mm -hmm. Here's a bunch of examples of stuff that was done and, and how they performed. Um, you know, and we're, we're trying to take that even one step further, uh, to be able to validate it by doing, um, you know, post-occupancy evaluations of what are these spaces actually like? Uh, and so that's where we're trying to go with some of that. Um, you know, you, you had mentioned about trying to build things internally. Uh, we, we were looking at trying to do our quote unquote own flag GPT, um, that, you know, was going to look at, at documents that we had internally and try to be able to help us with those, um, and uh, object recognition is another one that we're trying to look at so we can help plan some of these spaces a little faster. Um, you know, and even back on the spec side, uh, there was a, a tool that we looked at a number of years ago that was going to try to pull all the keynote values out of your Revit model to be able to build the spec database for it. Um, I think that ever really came to fruition. I, th I think part of that problem is you know, specs change. Numbers within inside of those divisions tend to change, and each spec writer kind of has a little bit of their own, their own special sauce they like to throw into things. So it, it's not always consistent across the board. Um, you know, some somebody might like you like to use a, a CSI versus master spec versus yeah, I'm trying to remember what the other the third one is, but um, you know, and so they're all slightly different. It's really the same content, but they're slightly different. Uh, you know, so I can I can see us trying to go down the road of taking what we've learned in the past and again, applying it to something that we can train a model on. And that's really kind of where our next goal, I think, um, correct me if I'm wrong, Sarah. No, you're right. Our, our group is trying to do uh, inside of our computational design group. And, you know, we've been given um, kind of the blessing to, to try to run with that, which is yeah. great. Um, you know, cause at least that way we know where the bias comes from. Um, if, right. if there is one, and again, there's, in any trained model, there's always going to be inherent bias because it depends on how you've trained it. Um, I, I know I talked about that one with uh, with Midjourney. Um, I think it was Mid, yeah, Midjourney uh, ran through a problem where oh, yeah. uh, somebody from from WCF, uh, I think it was I think it was WCF, was trying to look at um, something for a, a publication they were trying to do, and they they tried to look at black doctors trying to treat white patients or white children. And through 300 generations of imagery, even when they found and tried to match, you know, black doctors, pictures of, of white children, marry those two together, it wouldn't yeah. do it. It couldn't do it. You know? Right. So that's, again, that inherent bias that exists. Um, yeah. So that's, I, I think that's one of those things that we always need to be cautious of. Um, you know, and I'm, I'm a little bit of a skeptic on some of that, as Sarah might tell you, but, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm, uh, cautiously optimistic as to what is going to come out of it and, and where we're going to be able to go. I know it's going to happen. I know we're going to have to adopt to it, uh, and adapt to it. Um, but it's, you know, I, I think that's kind of where you, you really need to make sure of what your data is that you're putting into the model that you're trying to train, um, before it, before you can really utilize it. Especially if you're going to generate synthetic data, because we don't have enough data. So mm -hmm. you have to even add synthetic data and train it on, you know, <clears throat> is this good? Is this bad? And, and there's a human component to, yes, this is good. No, this is bad. So you even have 
bias coming from whatever human is training the model. So it, it's a challenge, um, but I think it's a good challenge. One of the things that we're trying to identify, I'm, I'm not sure how much this exists, and we hope we hope someone will come up with it while we're trying to work on it. Maybe they'll beat us to it. Is all of the tools that exist in the AAC industry that are using some sort of AI, it'd be really great to understand the accuracy. And maybe people don't want to say that out loud, but it would be really great to have some sort of, you know, you go to a restaurant in New York, it's got an A rating or a B rating on the front. I'd love to see 40% accurate, 85% accurate, just so that we could, you know, take that grain of salt or bias or whatever accuracy level and use that to to consume any product, any output in a way where we can either verify or at least state, we feel this is good information, but we can only 60% trust it. So I'd love to see transparency come about a little bit more. Yeah, I think I think the big the big challenge there is to separate, you know, subjective kinds of things like generation of imagery is one thing versus you know, really quantitative things that you could, that you could actually measure, you know, to your right. point, Evan, about, I, I guess I would push that we're, we're doing a bunch of work internally, right. On, in, in different aspects of this. And, uh, I think from my vantage point, still early days, but it's pretty clear that because this industry has so much information that goes into a project that one of the, I think probably early things that'll come about is the, is the tedious, I'll just call it the tedious checking of things. Like you want to, like some of the things that we're looking at are, could, could we, could we identify if a detail is changed on the sheet of a project than what it was in the original library? That would be something that you would say, you, some, some human is probably supposed to go check that, but if you could on yeah, nobody, nobody wants, and that's the part <laughs> yeah. that I think gets freed up then for the more creative side of it and the and the use of it is there's all this tedious yeah. work that people do, and it's, they just kind of take it for granted. That's part of the job. I think there's a bunch of that that'll just you know go away that we will start to automate and have better tools and and AI I think yeah. has a lot of promise for at scale across large bodies of data identifying you know and. Um, I don't know if your legal team has been doing it, but, you know, contracts are an example of this. You could, you could feed a contract through there and go, tell me, show me in this 90 pages, the, the paragraphs that I should pay attention to because something is different or out of the norm. Mm -hmm. And to me, those are the early, I think, real benefits that we can, that we're going to start seeing out of this, these kinds of technologies. I think uh, that's what makes it so interesting is that there's these tools that are designed to do very specific things, right? So those two examples that you just listed are very specific. It's like, here's a contract. What do I, and maybe, maybe it's even comparing two contracts and right. saying what's different between these two, or it's two different details. Those are two different yep. training models. Those are two different agents. And I agree with you, Randall, that like my ability to tap into those and have it act as an agent and then start to even talk to each other and figure things out. I mean, I don't know if you guys were paying attention to this CES when the Rabbit R1 device, it's this little handheld device. It's it's very like Star Trek-y in a way that it's like- You wear it's it like, on your 
called this thing that I can talk to and it can see, right? And so, but what's interesting about it is it's, it's tying all these different things together and acting as an agent on your behalf. So it's not like I go to this app to order my car and I go to this app to look for directions and I go to this app to order food. It just, you just tell it what you want and it connects the dots. And I think that is where we actually are going to find a lot of, again, utility to go back to that word as a, as a designer or as a, a leader to tie these things together because these tools are designed to be so specific in what they do. Getting back to the trust side though, right? You, you, you do need to trust the output. It's like, book me a, book me a vacation to Hawaii. It's like, well, is it going to buy the $200 tickets or the $500 tickets or the $1,500 tickets? And is it just going to charge your card automatically? Because I don't know if I trust that. Right. But I, these are the kinds of things that, that we are all dealing well, I with. Think, uh, Getting back well, to that. I was going to say, oh, I think ahead, uh, either Dave or Sarah one either made a comment or it was in your presentation, Dave, uh, that ultimately as professionals, you're, you're stamping drawings are responsible for the final output. So you know, like a lot of things, there's this, it is trust. It's like, how, how much do I trust it? I want it to be this companion, but I've still got to, at least in the, for, for sure, in the early stages, you've got to walk that walk with it and make sure and verify it. And then after you've seen it, you know, do it 50 times, then you say, okay, I feel pretty good that the 51st time is, you know, probably not yeah. going to be in left field. And at the same time, Architecture firms employ interns that are probably worse if, <laughs> than these AIs, right? And we're yep. still stamping those drawings. They laid out the toilet room, right? So it's I, it's funny, like, like you still see both sides of that as well. Uh, pe people like to, to crap on the AI part of it, but it's like your intern measured that space and they didn't measure it correctly either, right? So it's like th these are the kinds of things that we do have to just look at with fresh eyes and not inherently assume the the worst or the best right but but trust but verify kind of thing as we as we move through this just as we would with a with a real person i think yeah, that, that doesn't my, know what they don't know right my, my engineer who uh just retired this last year uh who was talking to uh, another engineer who again had a slight different background but had his phd in engineering um and i looked at him at one point and said you can't just take whatever the computer gives you and take it as gospel um, mm -hmm. you know, it's not that his design was wrong, but it was not the right application for, for the end result that he was using. Mm -hmm. Um, so from that aspect of it, you absolutely have to review everything on it because you're still the one that's going to ultimately be responsible for it. Your firm is responsible for it. You, you can't go, well, it's not my fault that chat GPT gave me a wrong answer, um, or made up data that didn't take exist. Full responsibility. It's, yep. It is your responsibility. And, and on that data side, I, I I think, Randall, you had mentioned uh, at Confluence two years ago that the AEC industry generates two and a half times the amount of data as like the healthcare yeah, it's industry. A, it's if a I remember right. Of info you know, so I, I think that's a, it's just a point to kind of make. If you look at that entire data set that's there, there's a lot that you could train a model sure. on. Um, how much of it you want to train, because how much of it is good data. Right. So that's the other thing that you always have to look at is, is the data that you're adding into your model to use as your training environment, the quality data that you want to have. Um, and then at some point I, I could see us actually trying to introduce mistakes to see whether or not the AI model would actually catch control. You need a control yeah. group. Yeah. So everybody thinks it's going right. to take away jobs. It's going to actually add new jobs. There's got to be somebody to do all this data 
cleansing and verifying and uh, just switches kind of hats of where, where resources are needed. Well, then at some point, the machine will be so smart, it won't need you anymore, which is what everybody's scared of. This episode is made possible with support from Chaos Enscape. Enscape is a plugin software that simplifies real-time visualization for us in the architecture, engineering, and construction industry. Whether your go-to design application is Revit, SketchUp, Rhino, ARCHICAD, or Vectorworks, Enscape lets you instantly create high-quality renderings by syncing data from your 3D model without additional import or export needed. Easily navigate every aspect of your design in real-time and identify and resolve any issues you come across quickly. Plus, you can immerse your clients in VR to provide a tangible sense of the project. Enscape is the trusted choice of over 500,000 monthly users across 150 countries. They are soon launching something special that will make your 3D workflow the best 3D workflow for a special price. In the meantime, you can experience it for yourself for free at chaos-enscape.com slash trial-14 or simply by Googling Try Enscape. Thanks to Chaos Enscape for their support of this episode. And now let's get back to the conversation. Can I say something provocative that I'm we not love, sure everyone's going to agree We love provocateurs. <laughs> well, you've met the right gal. Um, so one thing that we, I don't know, even know how to go down this road. Um, one thing that we've been discussing in the last several months. So FLAD's tagline, our corporate mission is enhance human potential. Right, Dave? We do buildings that enhance the human potential. Enhance human potential. Not machine potential, human potential. So when we talk about those interns that are measuring poorly, uh, and we talk about Flad being 95 years old, and I'm sure we'd love to see it become another 95 years older, what responsibility or capacity do we have to slow AI down? I know that's provocative because everyone gets excited and wants to see dollar signs saved and wants to go there. But if you remove that intern who doesn't learn that lesson, what is that doing in the long term for the future of a design profession mm -hmm. that's a practice? You never master architecture. It's a practice where you have to, we already have issues with bringing up the next generation. You know, all this knowledge in our and our folks who are retiring, we don't have great ways. We try ways. We don't have great ways of capturing that. You can't matrix plug your head into the back of the machine and then learn it all. And at the end of the day, I think we all want humans to continue to design for humans because personally, I believe when we get to the point where machining, machines are designing our buildings, we will likely reject that and change the way we use buildings because we're humans. We, we will always want to be designing for ourselves. Just like I love having women in the industry because they will design spaces that serve me that, no offense, a guy would never think about. And that's not wrong. It's just reality. So how we're, we're trying to be very careful in enhancing human potential that as we adopt tools, yes, we want to save money and stay in business. Yes, we want to compete with the rest of our peers in the industry and have a slice of that work. But do we have to lose some money, some opportunities in the short term to make way for a next generation of, of you know, intelligent humans? I don't have answers to this. I just 
raise the question because it's something we're thinking about. I, I teach a course at the university, an entrepreneurship course, and we're we're have we just started the semester like three we're three weeks in. So um, I had them read. I don't know if you guys have seen uh, Mark Andreessen wrote the Techno Optimist Manifesto. If you haven't read that, you should. Oh, I'm putting that down. Go read it. It's it's a manifesto. So he intentionally went to the extreme about that we should not be afraid of these things. Um, I tend to fall into that camp. What I would say, as you were saying that, Sarah, I think one we don't we don't even unless we pursue these kinds of things and these technologies, we don't even know what positive outcomes are going to come. I think that's just the human. Right. Entrepreneurial spirit is to go look for those things and investigate them. Uh, what I'll say, and I think I'll just—it sounds like very much that Flad and, and you, maybe because of the two of you primarily there—that you want to be the disruptor instead of the disrupted. You want to be—you want to be the ones that are out there. And sometimes it's—it's it's a tough position to be in because you're going to skin your knees sometimes and you take some bullets, um, but. Um, but uh, but uh, but you also are learning faster and what does work and what doesn't work. And we want to put more emphasis on here. So I think on behalf of your clients and what you can do and how this will positively affect them, which is what you're looking for, I think you do want to be, I'll, I'll use the word aggressive. You want to figure out where's that balance? How much can we push, find the edge, right? You're, you're looking, f I'll always use the word healthy tension. There's a healthy tension in disruption. And healthy is a nice word to put with it because it, there is two sides of it and you're always weighing the pros and the cons and there's always pros and cons with everything. But I think it's, um, I think it's exciting. I think I, I can see new energy around, you know, just in the industry of where some of this, how it's going to affect the industry. So kudos, I think, to your old team for pushing on this. So I would encourage you to keep kind of pushing, right? Yeah, we're not going to stop. We just want to make sure yeah. it's not at the risk. It's it's a difficult line, that balance you're talking about. It is. And there's moral and ethical pieces I think, to it and all those things. But it just means we have to have more conversations like this. Right. I appreciate the the being prov provocative about that because I think that at some point, what, what's interesting to me is watching from what's happening with firms is everybody's racing to do the exact same things. Right. Okay, so that's one way to, to look at it, right? It's like, it's just like BIM. It's like, okay, there's early adopters, which maybe got a little bit more value out of it for being early as a, as like, this is a differentiator for us, but eventually everybody's there, right? And so now it's it's just a commodity, right? right? It, it's, it, it's table stakes. Yeah, you have to do that. You have to do energy modeling. You have to do real-time rendering. You have to do all the things that everybody else already does. And so- Early on, when when a new technology comes out, there's kind of this race to 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 figure this stuff out, but to implement it, to say we're doing it, right? There's there's always the people who just want to say we're doing AI because and they're, they're not the marketing really. team, and 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 there and there's like who's who's doing AI, right? Like oh yeah, they're they're using that and they shouldn't be. Um, there, there's there's all that, and then and then I think we're also going to see a backlash. I think we're going to see like uh no ai like the, your kind isn't welcome here kind of a right. thing right like in 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 this practice it's all done organically 100% organic right. right and and right. and i think that's going to be a really interesting position to stake for 
some firms, right? Because it's like, no, we don't want to be like everybody else. Everybody else is doing that, the AI thing, right? And we're not. We're specifically not. You work with us. We do this slowly. We mentor our people for a sustainable business for the future, right? And I think that these are all really kind of provocative, potentially, stances to take in this. Like there's the cutting, bleeding edge, and then there's like, no, we're going to roll this really slowly, and we may never adopt it kind of a stance that you could take as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I think with the, there's a point of being too organic, I think, you know, along your, your thought there. If, if I'm an intern and I- and We still I draw by hand. Wait, I still use the, we still use the T-square. No, you <laughs> well, do not. Right. <laughs> we, no, we do actually I'm still just, have- I'm adopting the persona. <laughs> we do actually have one designer in our, in our, office that still uses he's got a parallel board and sure. uh if large sheets of sketch cool paper them. and does everything with cool. pencil and then mm -hmm. passes that on to somebody to put it into sketchup so we we do still have some of that old school flavor uh yeah but you know if i'm an intern going into a project and i think this is a i think joel pennington actually mentioned this on, on his cast with you about you know starting out as, as an intern and the first job that you get is to go do a door schedule on a 12-story building with fifteen thousand doors in it <laughs> right. That gets old real quick. Um, yeah, so if yeah. you can find a tool to do that for you or to help the process along so you're not doing this monotonous, you know, after you get about 100 of them done, you probably learn how to do a door schedule. After that, it's just, you know, a repetitive task that you should be able to pass off well, to somebody Evan, else. Evan, when you, when you mentioned the interns going and sending the interns to go measure with a tape measure, I'm, I'm just thinking about you're not scanning that with your phone because you can get a pretty damn good, you know, measurement. And then, you know, I've got a little, uh, I don't know right. if you've ever seen those little uh, Amazon Astro robots that they came out with. I bought, I play around with that kind of stuff. So I bought one and it's just amazing because it just, it doesn't do much except it just, it's really good at autonomously just running around the house. It just runs around and it doesn't bump into things. So I'm like, how, what's it how long is it before you can just send that bot over there to go measure the thing? And, you know, is that really what somebody wants to do? Nail. So there's a bunch mm -hmm. of these kind of roped things that, you know, you, 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 it's easy to fall into, well, this is the way I did it. And I had to learn that. So that's the way you should have to learn it. But at the same time, right. I didn't, I never used a slide rule. You know, I got to use a calculator to do, you know, complex math problems and, you know, at some point, it's like, I don't need an abacus yeah. anymore. I don't need a slide rule. I can, I think of it as going up the stack. It's like, now at some point, are you so far removed that you don't even understand what's going on is an open question. But, um, but anyway, I think a lot of those little tedious things that we have to do in this industry that probably makes those that went to design school and, and had fantasies of being great designers found themselves doing counting 15,000 doors and. And a tape measure, right? It's like, that isn't really what I signed up for. It wasn't Waste the glamorous right thing there. that I thought it was going to be. Yeah. Those are the things that I think we can begin yeah. to yeah. identify and say, hey, we can actually make those go away. And yes, there may even be fewer jobs in the industry because of that. But now you have to flip the side and say, what's the quality of life? What's actually, you know, is it just because it's a job or is it just because it's what, you know, gives people a pleasant life? And yeah. And that brings up a whole thing of, you know, heaven to your point about the sustainable, holistic, organic design. <clears throat> we live in a capitalistic economy. That's that's who all four of us on this call. I'm not sure where people are listening from, but this is America. 
So a lot of the way we design, we process, it it has to be uh, delivered in a way that we're going to get paid for it. So we have yet on this on this call today to talk about the cost implications of this process. I mean, Dave and I automate, I mean, we've been doing it for years now, and in our team, we automate uh, Dynamo scripts, Grasshopper scripts to make the process faster. Do we recoup that value? Not necessarily. Like, Evan, you were saying this race to the bottom. I'm going to get it done faster than the next guy, but you're still at the same price point that it was before. So in right. this race to the bottom, and and on the other side, this talk about, you know, AI doing the menial tasks no one wants to do, or is there value? Is there new value in an organic human approach? How are we pricing these things going forward? Because as you all know, the architecture industry, in my personal opinion, is already undervalued for the work we're doing compared to the contractor side or, or other sides. So, I mean, how do we upsell that it's higher or better quality? Or can we expedite fee sort of processes? I, we're not seeing that in our practice. We're seeing same price. You just get you just mm-hmm. get it quicker. Do more. And do more. Do it faster. This is what I'm saying about slowing it down. I don't know, but like mm-hmm. we can't we can't race the bond to the where the point where our output is you know Walmart's like that's not going to work. We still want to produce high design if we can. So what what are y'all's thoughts on that? I I love that that positioning because just using Walmart and talking about FLAD's ethos, right, which is to elevate human performance, those two things aren't the same thing, right? And the difference between architecture and buildings, to me, is that architecture is about people. And it's it's not just about serving a function. It is about people. And so a lot of times, form follows function right but but i'm i'm talking about like like it's space considerations are made for the people who inhabit those spaces for the majority of the time they spend in their days right what it's over like 90% that we're in buildings and that building can affect the quality of my life and my contribution back to a business or to a family or to to a community and so this idea of value where architecture, where architects and the practice of architecture fits into all that is really about bringing it back to people. And that is actually something that these machines have no clue about. They don't understand space. They don't understand light because there's no way to experience that, right? Um, and, and that is, to me, where architecture really firmly sits, helping people. People who buy architecture understand that is another thing, and that's where the loss, the, the lack of value translated, does or doesn't happen, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so, I, it it is an interesting. It's I don't know this is more existential, right? To have this part of the conversation, um, and and as humans, we leverage tools to accomplish tasks, and I think that's where we're starting to see this real interesting inflection point in the machine having agency to accomplish tasks on my behalf so that I can do more important things, which is, again, kind of always linking it back to the people who inhabit the space. So there is a balance, I think, that is going, or we, firms who do this right are going to achieve, figure out that that balance, right? It's not going to be purely organic or purely synthetic, right? It's going to be this we're going to figure out how to navigate this, and that's what people are really good at. Um, 
I, I think I went completely off topic of, of what you were well, saying. I think, there, no, no, I think uh, I, I, this is a fantastic let me take a conversation. Stab at it. And uh, I was like thinking, it's like, am I going to talk kind of both sides of my mouth? Because Do yes. It. So, um, so I think, I think when you think about <laughs> the front end process, the traditional architecture practice, let's say it takes three to five years from the time concept to, to construction right, in a project, which is typical. The, the, the subjective part of design is always going to be subjective. And that's what I think is always the challenge in this industry. I always say it's like architecture mm -hmm. is, is like a little bit of a starving artist there. You're never, you know, there's a, there's art to it. So it's like, you can't quantify some of this, what, what you can design, quantify. And yeah. I think we see it just writ large in the world is time. What's, what's pressure is to deliver things faster. We're seeing it. And the expectation is faster, 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 which sometimes is at odds maybe with the good design. What's kind of an interesting, I was, as I was running that through yeah. my head to, to be able to put those words together, I'm like, it's kind of a ironic that then once the building is delivered, it's going to last for 50 years, which is the aesthetic and, you know, Hey, did you spend enough time? So maybe it's actually not at odds yeah. with each other because what you want to do <laughs> is you want to automate and speed up and get rid of the things that aren't affecting the part that, that, that we get to invest more of our energy, whether that's compressed time or just amount of brain cycles on what's this thing going to will be like, what's this facility building going to look like uh, for the next 50 years that somebody's going to inhabit it. And we want more time to do that. We always talk about that. We want, we hope that these tools are going to give us more time to design. At the same time, it's just like you're under to constant time pressure. I mean, yeah. I've got some industrial clients who well, have told me they will start the design process for a plant or, or facility or factory. And before the design's finished, they'll start pouring concrete because it's cheaper to, to, to pull up the concrete if there's a mistake. Just because wow. it is like, we have got to move under constant pressure to get that thing on the ground and up and running. So anyway, that's maybe something we could kick around. Well, this, there's this internal battle in firms for, for the ages, right? I'm a designer. I know the more time I spend on a project, the better the project will be a hundred percent. And yet my project manager, right. will be like, you're Sorry. done. You're done. <laughs> Put down. the pencil down. <laughs> you're done. And it's like, no, it's not, it's not done. Right. And, and, and what you're telling me is this, this isn't going to change. Don't the, concrete <laughs> the pressure <laughs> is even more. <laughs> <laughs> you can't change the slab. The concrete's already poured. I don't know, sir. What, I mean, what's your, I, I, you were kind of nodding. Is it, does that resonate? Well, well, I I think Dave wants to say something. Someone give him a chance first because he's so uh, along those along those same standpoints. I, I've been on three different projects now, and again, this is kind of anecdotally, but we 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 worked on a project, um, and again, they wanted to have things done quick. They wanted early foundations. They wanted early steel. They wanted early exterior. They wanted a core and shell package to go up. They wanted the ability. Um, to potentially expand the building and add another two floors onto the top of it. Well, we got done with the structural design. Concrete was going in. Uh, structural steel was arriving on site. Shop drawings were done for it. And the owner came back and said, you know, we reran our calculations and it turns out instead of two more floors, we'd like to get four more. And 
we don't want them in the future. We actually want them now. Um, what, what can we do for that? And the answer is you can't. Like the foundation's in the ground already. Like there's no, there's no real going back. I can't just make a footing bigger necessarily and, and, and be able to validate that it's going to hold, you know, so now you're, you're kind of stuck with what you got. So I think, you know, as part of this trying to get things done faster, better, cheaper, quicker, I think even, even on our own side as design professionals, we need to remind our clients that we can do this, but if you're not looking out into the future and you're only trying to solve a problem for today, by the time you get done solving the problem for today, you're going to realize that the problem was probably bigger than what you thought it was. It was the wrong problem. Yeah. Or it was the wrong problem problem. entirely. Yeah. Or, or it's not a thing anymore. Um, you know, I, I, I'm, it's a, it's a very double-edged sword. If you're a client side going, I need to have all this done because I've got all this money invested in trying to get things going and you're not getting any ROI on, on that investment until the project is done and working. So, you know, you're pressured to do that, but if you built the wrong thing or you forgot something, um, you know, I can, I can equate it back to doing OR suites. If you had an extra six inches in your OR for that ninth person to come in and your doctor's a lot easier to move around, but you didn't realize it until after it was built because you were told, nope, this is the size of the OR you're going to get because we're limited on square footage. You know, that's a big mistake. You know, four or five million dollars a piece for an OR suite. You just built 32 of them the wrong size. That's kind of a big oops. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's, again, it's just another thought question of if you, if you jump way too far out in front to get things done faster before you fully evaluated the problem, you may find yourself with another problem. It's interesting because people who buy, you know, pay for architectural services don't do architecture, right? So they don't understand the value. They don't understand the process. They don't necessarily understand the outcome, right? And and I have this phone. This phone has an expiration date on it, right? Like I, I know inherently as a consumer that it's going to last me two, three, four years. And... It's interesting to me how we kind of put things into certain buckets of, okay, these things like technology, cars, you know, lawnmowers, whatever these things, they have an expiration date. They're not going to last for it. But they try, start to apply that same thinking to buildings, right? Which is like, we're, we're an organization. We're only going to use it. We, we, we're for, like to your point, Dave, we're solving it for today. We're solving the problem for now and we're not taking the time now because everybody knows that the best time to make decisions on projects is early, right? Because they, they, you can't change them later, but also they have the biggest impact early. And so I, I think that is part of this communication to, to people because they're applying like, well, we're just going to make this building like Honda makes cars, right? And, and it's, no, it's, it's actually completely different than that. We're going to have to live with this for 50 plus years and there's no expiration date on this building, right? But but these ideas that we're having now, or the constraints that we have now, probably do have expiration dates. And 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 the people who are making those decisions may not even be with the organization. And when by the time the building's done, like I, I've done school architecture, right? The the superintendent will not be there at the ribbon cutting, right? And there they will be somewhere else. And the decisions that they made impacted that project. For everybody who's going to use that school for the next 30 or 40 years until they can actually raise enough money to do a modernization, right? And so these are the kinds of conversations, I think, that are really 
like needed to happen along the way. And hopefully there are people in these firms who are helping to guide those kinds of conversations because yeah, it's not the same process. All things are not equal. We can't treat this like we treat these other things. So to, to tie a bow or bring this back around, that's why Dave mentioned earlier that one of the, for now, one of the key priorities for how to use AI inside of FLAD is through our benchmarking and POE data. So the best way that we can verify or identify issues with that design and then how it's being used is through post-occupancy evaluations. And in an ideal world, we did a pre in their old building, designed it because design's a prototype, and then assessed it in the post. And being able to capture that data, which our data and analytics team does a great job at, and trend it over time, not only is that is it serving that school or whatever hospital to understand if it was what, what to improve in the future, but we can take an entire market sector and apply the lessons learned to, to future jobs. You know, it's a new uh, equine hospital at a new university. Okay, this is what we've seen uh, could have been better on the last prototype based on how the human behavior is using the building now that it's occupied. And so we're trying to think data, great. AI loves data. And we have history, great. So we're prioritizing that as an aspect for AI to serve FLAG because exactly what you just said, Evan. Well, mm. What about, um, to kind of bring it back uh, to some of the um, shorter term efficiencies around, especially in the construction, have you all done any work? Some of the things we've been talking about internally and had a couple of external conversations about our, can you track and measure RFIs and look at that as a way, as a feedback mechanism to, you know, okay, what in the design process might we be missing or could improve on that might reduce or, you know, once things are out there in the field and being built, what's your all's experience? Take it, Dave, take it. Well, in, in my experience, a lot of that, that tracking your project, um, trying to look at the number of RFIs to, to evaluate or evaluate how good your, your design was or how good your documents were, how good your, your models are, I, I think is a little, a little deceiving because you have some contractors that are out there that their sole purpose in life is they are going to write as many RFIs as they possibly can. And you're going to be able to turn around right away and say, read the drawings because it's all there. And I know it's there. And you'll get to a point where you'll have, again, some potential architects that are just going to reply to that, read the drawings. They won't even tell you where it is because I've gotten so many of them. So that's a, that's a tactic you also have, you're saying by those construction firms. Yeah, I, I think it is. I, I, in my experience, it's been there. He's lived it. <laughs> I, I also yeah. will tell you there are other contractors that will send you RFIs based on your model, not necessarily your drawings. Currently in today's environment, your 2D drawings are still typically your documents of service. That's, that's the things we stamp. We don't stamp the model. And so they will send you a bunch of RFIs and they, they may correct stuff and they may be right in what their RFI is. Again, that's not really anything related to the design documents but it is related to your model and they're using the model to do other coordination with. So it's not wrong. Um, and I've also seen where they will just issue RFIs uh, to clarify, to make sure that they were reading things right, which are all great. You know, there's a, and then you have some of them that won't send you an RFI at all. 
they'll build it exactly like your documents tell you and then tell you that your documents were wrong after the fact. So <laughs> and you didn't say, and you say, why didn't you ask me? Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, we went it both ways. I, years ago, I had a project where a, a steel fabric or a, a steel erector called us up and said, Hey, geez, I had a really hard time trying to put this stuff together. And we had a, a welding inspector that was on site through three of the staff off and it wasn't, it wasn't really good. And, uh, in our spec, we typically call it for an AISC certified shop. Well, they neglected to use that. They want somebody else. They did some other things and turns out the fab on it wasn't great. If, if the steel erector would have called us the day that he ran into the first fit up problem, we would have resolved everything. And at the end of the day, they made a bunch of mistakes. They had to call us back. We had to do a bunch of fixes. It was, it was kind of a nightmare. Contractor actually got charged for it. So, I mean, that's an example of not sending in an RFI for a spot where you mm -hmm. probably should have, um, you know, so I don't, I don't always put a lot of faith in the number of RFIs. Yeah, not so much the quantity, uh, but you know, if you can, you know, as you said, you kind of can, you can sort those into two or three or four buckets and yep. do so. You know, the RFIs that do come back and say, Hey, you know, we weren't able to build it this way. What, what can we do? Like what you've, what you've proposed here is not yep. constructive. All right. Well, then that's definitely a lesson learned for, for the design team that should be used going forward. Um, you know, the, those type of ones are absolutely critical for us to learn. So we don't do it again. Um, you know, I mean, there's, but I, I think like I said the, the sheer just, Hey, I'm going to look at it and say, well, this project had a thousand RFI, so that must be crap. I just had this um, vision of the yeah. contractors bot talking to the flat bot and they just resolve it. You know, in a few back and forth, work it out. Okay. Oh no! It, it it it'd be great if that was the way that it happened. But I mean, even on on you can't it, sue you know, a bot. I mean, maybe you can. You gotta blame will. somebody. No, right. Somebody will. You can sue the company that <laughs> owns it or is running it. I mean, that's that's the thing that's with funny. that. But I'm not sure that we do enough projects that it would be. I mean, I can see what you're saying, Randall, as being highly valuable, but I wonder if that would be more valuable for, you know, a 10,000-person firm than a 400-person firm. I've heard people saying there's not enough data in all of AEC to do, to do that. Mm. Kind of. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, going back to the original four buckets that you presented at the beginning, can you – That this is what I do. I, I bring it all back, guys. Um, if If there's a way – that you could give some of the guidance, share some of the guidance that that came out of those four buckets. Just a few bullet points. We're not we're not giving legal advice here. I I just think uh, I've seen this happen time and time again. I used to run digital practice at a at a large firm as well, and every firm is reinventing the wheel. Every everybody's doing it on their own, and I think the purpose of this podcast is to share out some of this stuff. And so. Again, none of this is legally binding. None of this is, is any kind of advice. But I would love it, Dave, if you would share some of the things that you shared. I know that some of them are just concerns, but you actually also have some guidance. And this is also a moving target. We'll say, state that up front. But, but where, where, did, where have you been on that journey to kind of wrap things up here and bring it back to where we started? Sure. So on, on the confidentiality side, and I, and I remember... I remember seeing a couple of eyes that got really wide when I mentioned this during the, during the talk, um, you know, anything you put in and everybody's got to remember this, right? Any data you enter into a computer, whether it's a Google search, a chat bot, um, 
doesn't matter what it is, that data is going to be collected 100%. And how it's going to be used, you have no idea because it's their data now. You don't own it. So on the confidentiality side, you know, our response to that is we never really want to upload anything in any personal data, client data, project data, anything like that in any typical way, um, you know, to any, to any bot that's out there or any chat GPT or mid journey or whatever it is, we don't want to provide that information because once it's there, you're never going to get it back, which does lead into the ownership portion of, we want to own all of our own data. That's a, it's a daunting task to think about, but we want to own it. We don't necessarily want to share it. And that, again, that, that kind of comes from those, yeah, uh, somewhere between 75 and 85% of our projects are more than likely confidential with confidential clients. So we, we can't share that data, um, quite honestly. So that's again, another reason to, to kind of look at that as a, who owns it, right? If I give it to, if I put it into a veil as an example, not that Randall's going to do anything with it, but it's there. He's going to have it, right? Um, yeah. So who owns it is a big thing. Autodesk Construction Cloud, Dropbox, the, Google Drive. Right. Google you Docs. know, and that's that's kind of a risk that you play with it, but it's also, you know, Autodesk Construction Cloud is a, is a great one to mention because it's, you kind of almost have to use it today. Um, and you're kind of taking Autodesk at their word, in a sense. You, well, that was the big announcement at Autodesk University this year was Autodesk AI. And those were the immediate questions where people were raising their hands and saying, what does that mean? <laughs> Is my data right. because it's already in your cloud? You know, and, and, the, and that's where the conversations need to be need to be ha happening, because I think those are legitimate. Yeah. It, it, who who owns the data and what are in the terms of service right. and, and all of those things? So the, it's it's a it's a complicated world. The bonus part, at least with Autodesk, is if you do read through your your end user license agreement, when you purchase anything from them, um, because you are a customer of them, they have an NDA with you on any project. So they can't disclose it. So that's like a what they do with it after the fact? Yeah, no, I I don't know. Um, hopefully, they use it to their, make their data software. training is opt in as yeah. well, based on the the stuff that. Oh, I heard. for for the AI. Uh, don't, don't don't take me at my word. I double check me on that, but I believe that that's the case. Yeah. Um, so Flad would not be opting in at this time. That is correct. Mm -hmm. For um, just to you know, make that clear. <laughs> and and then hoping that uh, you know as. As Scott Davis said, soon in roadmap uh, when it comes to the certification of FedRAMP, because that's right. another thing that we've been trying to look for. Um, so the, the third bucket then was uh, validity of the data. How much can you actually trust what you're getting out of it? Um, which goes to that at the end of the day, we are licensed professionals and we are responsible for whatever product it is that we're putting out on the street. Uh, so we have to know what it is that we're doing. Um, and you have to again, review that data and trust it. You know, the, the old idea of trust, but verify, right? We want to look at it. We we're pretty sure it's right, but you, you have to review it. Cause if you don't QC your own documents, you're going to run into problems. Um, and then the discrimination aspect of it, right? The, again, that, that inherent bias that exists, uh, in any model that you train, if I, if I set up a, a building design, um, AI to, to generate me a building facade and a building structure. And I, and I train that model from an overly exuberant environmental side of things, right? I'm not going to have any glass potentially. I'm, 
I may not have any actual concrete in it. I may not, you know, you're going to have a building that may not really function the way you want it to because not for humans, yeah. right? Because <laughs> you were looking at it from one wayside, you know, one side of the spectrum entirely. And it wasn't yeah. including anything else because it was inherently biased. And the flip side of it, if you were, you know, if you did things and you were a steel fabricator and you, you ran and put that out there, guarantee you your structure is going to be made out of steel. If it was concrete, guarantee you your structure is going to be made out of concrete. doesn't matter which one was cheaper, which one was more expensive, you know, better for the environment, faster, quicker, whatever it is. That discrimination that is inherently by, that is inherently part of and a portion of any trained model because it doesn't include everything that's out there. There's not every possibility. So I think and, that's- And maybe there is, but it's a question of weights, right? And and where where do the, where where is more weight been applied throughout that process? Right. And I think that's part of our job as designers and architects too, right? Which is as tastemakers and curators of information is to decide what the weights are that are appropriate for this project taking all of the stakeholders wishes and desires into account right uh, that that to me is is kind of where the human actually does sit is is the the old switchboard operator it's like okay we're plugging in more weight over here and we're plugging in more weight over here and less weight here and, and because we're synthesizing ideas into reality and and you have to make decisions along the way right so yep, i think that idea the... of weight is is a, a good way to think about it it's like the little sliders you get in your uh, generative design tool I want a little more of this, a little less of that, mm, right? Mm. Uh, so I think those are the four buckets, sir. I don't know if you've got other additional thoughts you want to throw at that. I think you did a great <laughs> job. As he did in October when he was here, we missed you, Sarah. Uh, I know I you know. had uh, you couldn't make it this year, but uh, we were glad that, that Dave was able to make it. And uh, it was a great part of the conversation we had um, uh, Sam from uh, Yegatech also covered um, and she's been on the podcast earlier talking about some of the governance issues, but it was nice to have Dave there and, you know, talking about, you know, from, from wearing the flat hat of how much leadership you guys are taking on really thinking about this and, and thanks for coming on, on this and helping to share these thoughts with the broader audience. That's really what we're trying to do with the confluence events in general is, you know, you really use this as professional development time. And, uh, so can't do it without, without you all you know, spending time and, and with us to talk about these things. So appreciate it. Yep. And, and, and we can't do it without you putting it on Randall. So well, we've got uh, one, uh, you know, it, now it's to always, say that we've got one, we're doing a one day event in New York city uh, in April. So that's, uh, cool. that's firming up. So, uh, look for the news there. And then we're, AU is stepping on when we normally do it in the fall. So we're actually backing up to like early September. So watch for news coming for our fall event, a three day event. So anyway, Love, love having you all involved. Yeah, I, I'll, I'm going to echo what Randall said, but also say that uh, I'm glad you presented what you did because everybody who practices was like, oh, it's oh, good. It's not just us. Right. And we're not the only ones dealing with this. And thank you for stepping up and sharing that to a wider audience. And then uh, obviously coming on the show here where we can share it with an even bigger audience these kinds of conversations are critical when, as everybody's navigating these topics and, and ideas and implementation and tools. And uh, the, I, I don't want to see architecture fail at slow adoption just because we don't know what we don't know. Right. And having these conversations 
together can help us get wherever we're going in a in a more informed and potentially faster way not that fast is the goal but but to to make these decisions in public to to produce this kind of information is critical so thank you both for sharing today it's been fantastic it was a fun discussion Thanks for this, We'll we'll have you back on. We are keeping AI kind of as a general theme through this year. There's just so much that's evolving so quickly that um, with the confluence events. So uh, I'm sure we'll pull you all back in. You'll know a lot more towards the end of the year than you do right now. Share those. Yep. Perfect. It will be different by then, right? Glad to do it.